This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be your faithful American Muslim patriot, a believer in the American system, our Constitution. And a Muslim who believes that global terrorism is the tip of the iceberg, that under that is a global massive movement of jihadism, of Islamic statism, that includes the Sharia state, that has permutations that include viral permutations of gross massive movements of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia, or... Diobandis of Pakistan, or corporate Islamists like the monarchies and autocrats of the Gulf states, or the military generals of Syria and Egypt or Iraq. Ultimately, these are no different in that they drink from the same trough of the Sharia state. Well, this week I wanted to spend some time with you talking about the most current issues of the day. And, you know, who would have thought that uh, with all that is besetting uh, Angela Merkel in Germany that she would do a pump fake and (laughs) try to tell us that the biggest problem in Germany is the burqa. So uh, in her speech to the Christian Democratic Union this week, she made it clear that immigrants need to embrace Western culture, German culture, that they will not compromise and she will not allow them to be in public, at least to the limits of the law the Constitution allows. She's going to have a partial ban on the burqa. And she echoed the words of Thomas de Maizier, a interior minister who had been calling for a complete ban on the burqa. And as the Christian Democratic Union met, various speeches were given, and Angela Merkel's position seemed to please and warm the cockles of the hearts of the nationalists in Germany, that somehow they had awoken Angela Merkel. But I would tell you this was a feign. This was not a reality, and ultimately... The reality is if Angela cared about German culture, German nationalism, and German German sovereignty, she would have been a little more discerning, a little more vetting would have gone into allowing a million refugees into Germany that have changed the national character of Germany for quite a long time. Before we get into that, I think... Let's talk about what this is. There's been a lot of discussion in the West about banning the burqa. And the uh, burqa, if you will, has a definition. What does it mean? Can you ban a piece of clothing? And what is the American perspective about this ban? I want to talk to you about all that because as an American who believes that our identity is wedded to very closely to religious freedom, that my ability to be American first, to have my human rights protected by this government, by our system of law, that it allowed me to be more Muslim than any so-called Muslim country in the world. But that's because of the separation between church and state, and my work in reform is about getting those ideas to the Muslim consciousness. I I truly believe that until Muslims begin to act and feel and think like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, 
the founding fathers did in the rejection of theocracy. We're not going to win this war. So, listen, I'm the last one who would ever want to take away a core religious freedom. But it's important to talk about and understand what we're talking about. I'm not talking about the hijab, that scarf that many Orthodox Muslims wear around their head to conceal their hair, but their face is still identifiable. I'm not talking about uh, the shadur, uh, which is a larger hijab that covers the shoulders and begins to obscure the body shape. I'm not talking about the khimar, which is a better description of the hijab, but a veil that hangs down above the waist and covers the chest and the back. And there are many other words. The burqa is a head covering with just eye holes on it that then covers the body. The niqab is the face veil that is put in front of the hijab. Yes, I think those should be banned publicly. Now, what harm does a piece of clothing have to public society? And does that get government into the business of controlling a person's own environs and the choices they make? Uh, I have to tell you that everything is a balance. And I think that if you think about this, when people go in the public, identity is what makes us human. It's what makes us have a personal individualism and it may, gives us our rights. Without our identity, there are no rights. If you don't exist, you don't have rights. So that existence is dependent upon an identity, and that facial identity is that existence. I would defy anyone to prove to me otherwise. How do you prove who you are under that tent that you may be wearing that covers your face? If your face is covered, it could be anyone, and we're going to have to use vocal recognition in order to identify who you are stay at home, then the recognition of your identity doesn't matter. Come into the public, and it does. And this has not only religious freedom ramifications of how the government can defend you, and it can only defend you if you're identifiable. If you're not identifiable, then who are you? Is it Zuri Jasser? Is it Fatima? Or who is it behind the veil? Nobody knows. The Supreme Court has ruled this. There's rulings, actually, about the freedom to wear a mask. Now, the Supreme Court's ruling came after large demonstrations in New York in which protesters wore masks. And the argument made by the police was that fires and other things could be started and riots which may end up after a peaceful demonstration or during a so-called peaceful demonstration. And if those riots progressed into violence and people were wearing masks, they could not be identified. So therefore, the public right, the individual right to wear a mask is non-existent. Obviously, we do it in things like Halloween, but the prohibition is non-enforced. So I do believe, obviously, if you have a driver's license, you have to be identifiable. You can't wear a niqab on a driver's license or a burqa over your head on a driver's license. And it only makes sense. Think about the security risk of a suicide bomber with a belt that goes in unidentifiable into any facility, restaurant, or soft, soft target. That is not a right. We have a right when we're engaged, somebody coming at us with a knife or whatever it may be that I see their face. And I'll tell you, this right is not only a national security right, but it is rational. Because if you decide to carry a knife and or drive a truck into somebody and decide to commit an act of terrorism, 
your face needs to be identified. Imagine the pictures of the Boston bombers that ultimately led within 6 to 12 hours to a manhunt across Boston. Those involved facial recognition. Cameras are throughout many of the community's public places, not invading privacy, but public places. The courts have ruled many times that when you're in a public place, there is an implied privacy in certain places, like locker rooms or elsewhere that might have some public nature to them. But ultimately, in the streets, in the parks or wherever, there is no understood right to privacy if people are filming or the government has cameras. So there's also no right to be moving around subversively in masks. So national security, local security is dependent upon some type of especially facial recognition. So then the other issue comes to the balancing of rights. Many times, under the guise of religious freedom, there are those values that we end up compromising or we say we should because they proponents of those so-called rights weighs the flag of religious freedom, saying that they have a right to do so because of the First Amendment and their right to freedom of religion. However, what is the balance of values? If it involves polygamy, we have said that even if that's in the privacy of your home, the state will not sanction that because we condemn that so-called value of polygamy. Why? Because it minimizes the rights of a woman, because it decreases her value of equality. And there are other arguments to that. And greater lists of arguments as to why polygamy is misogyny. And I think similarly, not only is there a national security argument, not only is there an individual rights and honoring of an individual under God argument, but there is also a profound list of arguments against the right to wear the niqab or the burqa because that facilitates a society that treats that woman with a bigotry of low expectations. That somehow, yes, you know, when I went to Saudi Arabia with the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, I sat with a group of women that were supposedly the brightest and best that Saudi Arabia had to offer, and they presented them to us as scholars with PhDs, and they said that they had chosen to sit with us and wear the niqab, that that's what they felt was their right and the right thing to do. Fine. People, that's the way they practice their Islam. It's not my Islam. I don't know any women in Islam that believe that, that I know personally in my family or elsewhere, about the niqab. Again, don't confuse niqab with hijab. Hijab is very different and very normative across Islam. But again, that also is a minority who choose to wear the hijab, but that is not what we're debating here. We're debating niqab the facial covering that takes away facial identity and makes a woman into an anonymous human being. So these women sat in front of us, proudly wearing the niqab. They could have told me, they told me initially what their name was. I had no way to remember their names. And I pitied them that this was a value that somehow they're paternal misogynistic society put into their heads and reminded me of many victims of domestic abuse that ultimately begin to find excuses for their domestic abuse because that's what they're conditioned to believe is the maximum level of their rights that could be worse. And I'm sorry, this bigotry of low expectations I will not tolerate in the name of my faith and yes, I will speak out against, I will never condone government going into homes to rip off niqabs and do horrendous assaults like that. But if they go into public, that's the opportunity for the public to teach values, to encourage inequality, and not to encourage misogyny, patronization, 
and a system that takes away women's identity and their autonomy. When we come back, I want to keep talking about the burqa, Germany, and national security. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This this week. And I'm your faithful correspondent, willing to try to breach those lines, those divides between the West and the Islamic world, the Islamist world. So... I think there's no issue that brings home a number of the issues more than this issue of the burqa or the niqab, the head covering that covers the anonymity of a woman who is underneath. Is it a woman? When somebody covers their head, you really don't know anymore. They don't have a face. You assume it is. But again, there's a security risk. But let's step back. This issue has come up in Canada. It's come up in France, in England. It hasn't as much in the United States. Uh, It did come up in reference to driver's license in various states where some women refused to show their face for their driver's license, and the courts have rightfully ruled the right to drive doesn't exist. It's a privilege. So if you want to drive, you need to show your face. So... That has not been an issue in the United States yet. Now, I would support the banning of facial covering. The court systems has backed that, and I think it's a moral position that's not askance of our primacy of religious freedom in America. I don't believe it's a religious right that rises to the level of protecting the other rights it cancels by giving women that right to remain anonymous. And as I mentioned, there is a bigotry of low expectations that somehow this right is so significant enough that it is at the margins but yet deserves protecting. Because that includes cults that would wear masks, that would threaten society through some type of anonymous cultist, collectivist behavior, as the court has ruled demonstrations with masks are prohibited. And, you know, let's go back to Angela Merkel. Do you really think, as she's giving the speeches this week of telling Muslims that they need to become assimilated with German culture, that she cares about German culture? I don't don't think so. If she did, the one million, almost a million refugees that they graciously opened their doors to, but suicidally didn't really care to vet them whether they had proclivities for Western culture or were Islamists, believed in the Sharia state, believed in misogyny, rejected the secular German state, were anti-Semitic. All the things that are not part of our Muslim reform movement declaration are not part of any modern Muslim ideas, but part of medieval archaic interpretations of Islam that are quite pervasive among the refugees, for the most part, are from Syria, but also we're finding included Somalis, Pakistanis, Afghanis, Iranians, others who are escaping the Middle East and hijacking this flood of refugees. I mean, even some studies show that 23% had sympathies for ISIS. You think those folks shared values of German culture? So Merkel should have been talking about that when she limited and paused the refugee intake that she did not do. 
rather than just opening the floodgates. So now when she's giving speeches to the Christian Democratic Union, now when she's up for re-election, she finds an issue to put on the front page and respond to the interior minister, de Maizière, who basically made this an issue, asking for a ban, and she acquiesced. Why? Because the Burqa lobby is not that significant. But when we talk about religious freedom, I think it's so important that this issue be highlighted. I've had disagreement with many folks on the on the right, conservatives, who obviously endorse significant personal privileges and rights for religious freedom, and I stand with them in the rejection of the government intervention in our right to choose those things that are personal decisions, that are rights and personal religious choices that we don't want the government to get in between. And I don't want to name some of those hot-button issues because I like this to be a bipartisan issues, but you could name what, what you will across the spectrum, left and right, but government intervention and religious freedom is a very sensitive issue. But I would beg of you and, and my fellow conservatives that are listening, I hope you can separate not only the national security issue, but at the center of religious freedom is individual power and character and strength and identity. That the preservation of that identity is only sacrificed when the government rams an idea down your throat. When the government takes away that identity. But if the government is trying to give you the ability to express your identity and to be named as that individual rather than allowing you to be anonymous, I think the government in this case is actually preserving your identity. I think the government in this case is actually saving an individual from self-sacrifice by telling them that if they're public, they must accept the values of society which are to honor the individual's identity and strength of character and not to allow them to be hidden under a tent without a facial identity, with barely a name that won't be remembered because they don't have an identity. So I would make the argument that actually the banning of the niqab or the burqa is an honor of individual identity. Merkel may have been throwing the nationalists a bone in this case, but I think the conversation is well worth having. The Burqa lobby may not be that significant, but I don't believe this is a sacrifice of religious freedom. I don't believe when the Saudis or individuals in mosques in this country, in America, decide... They're going to stand for religious freedom by letting women have the right to wear the burqa and stand behind their Islam. The Council on American Islamic Relations, true to form, exploited this issue to say that, oh, it is a sign of Islamophobia that while the burqa or niqab is not that common, it doesn't threaten society, so therefore... Anyone who fears it is just an Islamophobe, as the care grievance mongers squeaky wheel says over and over. There's no issue to which they won't run their ambulances to or after in order to exploit and scream Islamophobia their conjured up concept that somehow Islam as an idea has rights. No, it's human beings have rights. Those human beings that they want to shield anonymously under a niqab have rights. And actually it's the West that's trying to protect them from the rights of Islamist, misogynist, and fascists like the leaders of the Council of American Islamist Radicalization care. Yes, I think this is a 
litmus test. It is one of those lines in the sand, the fault lines between do you adhere to Islamist wackiness or do you believe in the equality of all under God? There is no freedom to conceal yourself publicly. And again, last is the security argument, which I think is obviously the one that's going to be the clearest to get everybody to understand, as some, especially as I said, some conservatives will rally around religious freedom, no matter how weird we may think it is, they feel it's something worth defending. And again, it's not whether something is odd or unusual, just like polygamy or other acts that might be endorsed by fringe communities. We have values that we endorse nationally, and we may prohibit people from making those choices because of the threat to their own identity and their own equality. Look at suicide. No country, no state, no county, no nowhere in America condones active pathological suicide. Now, that slippery slope is moving too as we talk about now what it's no longer called physician-assisted suicide, it's aid in dying, which we can talk about in another program, something I've been actually very dedicated to fighting. But there are laws against suicide, and we often will hold teens or others who want to commit suicide against their will, even adults, because they're a threat to themselves. So the value of life takes precedence over an individual's right to choose to end it. Now, that's a very poignant example of committing acts of violence against oneself, but the state does have an interest in protecting a cultural moray of honoring the individual over self-annihilation. Society will be better served, and I do believe that a niqab, a head cover that prohibits facial recognition is an annihilation of the self, regardless of what the woman behind that niqab feels it may do publicly. It annihilates herself. It makes her not human. It makes it inhuman. It is an end of her human rights. And I think it's in society's benefit for all the reasons I've talked about that that not be a right that we protect. And I don't think it takes us in any way away from who we are as a nation, the freest nation on earth. So Germany was right, but don't let Angela Merkel make herself appear to be the defender, the staunch defender of secular rights, of a believer in the West's rule of law over the Sharia state. I don't think she could define the Sharia state if she wanted to. Maybe she's making some progress that I'm missing, and I'll look at her other speeches. But, you know, I think maybe it's just some pandering because of the election cycle in Germany. Or maybe not. She did say she was having some regrets about what she did to the population in Germany. And maybe just as with Brexit, she's seeing the changes in populism that are beginning to demand that Germany return to its democratic roots. And I hope democratic. Often these pendulums swing too far the other way. And I think many of these countries are going to have to start to think about what it means to be German or British or French. I think America has the best solution, which is one of religious freedom, one of democracy and immigrant identity, that we are an idea. America is not a landmass, it's an idea. My parents felt American the moment they came here. Yes, I have women in my family that decide to wear the hijab and some that do not. It's a right to choose to or not to wear it. But it's a positive and a negative right. The Islamists say it's only a, neg a positive right. They'll rarely defend the right of the woman to dress more scantily than they would approve of. They'll rarely defend the right of a woman to identify as a proud Muslim. 
They'll say, oh yeah, she's Muslim, but just denigrate her if she decides not to wear the hijab. No, to put her equally as as valuable a voice of Islam if she chooses not to wear the hijab. And care shows how this happens and how this works. When they run to the defense of the niqab, but they'll rarely run to the defense of women who choose to wear a bathing suit or to wear something that they may perceive to be offensive. These are the challenges of religious freedom, of the battle against Islamism and Sharia law and its medieval interpretations in the West and in the Islamic world. This is Udi Jasser, and we'll be right back on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This this week on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you, and thank you for joining me. If you're new, appreciate you taking the time to get my perspective on national security, on Islamic reform, and what our strategy should be to win this war against radical Islam, and to keep us safe, and to help move the world forward in democracy and freedom while keeping this city on a hill, what it is, that beacon, that light, of freedom for the rest of the world. A lot of discussion has been centered in politics and on news this week since this past few weeks on President-elect Trump's selections for his cabinet. Some of them are beginning to be announced, and I have to tell you, for the, for, for the most part, uh, it's been great to see strong, stalwart patriots being selected to lead this government and hopefully bring about a change towards leadership that takes ownership for the problems, recognizes the problems, and engages all those folks in America and abroad that are agents for change, agents for progress, and as we talk about in this program, agents for reform. To see General Mattis selected is just uh, beyond wonderful, I think. Uh, he deserves to get that exemption. Uh, and, and listen, I'm talking about exemption of having a military retired general run the secretary to run the Department of Defense. I think that exception we should not take lightly. Uh, coming from Syria, a seeing my parents escape a regime that was ransacked by a military. I get why there needs to be that time, that separation between a civilian-run government, a civilian-led policy-making arm that can declare war, an executive branch that's civilian-run, but a military that obviously is led by patriotic servicemen and women, enlisted and officers. So that time is necessary, but it doesn't always have to be, and there can be exceptions, and I think General Mattis meets by far the criteria for that exception. Especially as somebody who was run out of the military by our previous commander-in-chief, who abjectly failed in his duties to keep us safe, to present strength against our enemies, to stand with us, to stand for us globally, 
against our enemies domestic and abroad. I think he spent more time on the golf course than dealing with national security, but I think things are due for a change. Now, as all of you know, if you listen, you know I was no major Trump supporter, and I'm still waiting to see how his policies bear out. But I think looking at the leadership that he's been selecting, we know that uh, there's probably due to be some significant change and a lot of very trustworthy individuals leading some of the major departments under his executive branch. One of the things I think I wanted to spend some time with you is not to analyze each of these picks, but to look at a global strategy. I think each of the elements uh, will have improvement. We see General Kelly now, uh, who will take over Homeland Security if he's approved. And each of these has its mission, obviously, to keep us safe at home and abroad. But I do think what was missing from the presidential campaign that I hope we see as we get to the brass tacks of running this country is we're going to need a strategy. We're going to need a executive branch that God willing, steps away from this heinously vague countering violent extremism and moves toward clarity on what we're countering. And as I've said here and written and spent the last 15 years since 9-11 talking about and acting programs in favor of a policy recognition domestically and abroad, that we will counter violent Islamism, that this is a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution, that America needs to take sides within the House of Islam, and that while walls are great for borders, they don't work for ideas. Ideas that are bad need to be defeated by ideas that are good. And abroad, we have to have potent campaigns for the advocacy of freedom and liberty to defeat those ideas that we know will just wither away quickly if they are attacked by the beauty of the ideas of freedom and liberty that was the hope of the Arab awakening but was usurped by the viral powers of Islamism or political Islam and the corporate Islamists of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So, I know this is a lot to ask of a, of a Trump campaign that was led by a disruptor that didn't really get too deep into any of these issues, but I think as he gets America's best and brightest together, I hope that includes... Muslims that can begin to have, and, and this is the message I want to give you in this week's broadcast, is, is I hope that that common thread for his commission on radical Islam, for his various departments, that the common lens that we look at this is that the problem is Islamism and the solution is liberty. The problem is the Islamic State, and the solution is the secular, liberal, democratic state. And yes, America, I think, is the best example of that solution. Being a country founded not on land, but on an idea, on religious liberty, on immigrants that came from all over the world as a salad bowl that were together formed this unbelievably successful uh, experiment of this republic based on a constitution that I believe is the best on the planet and bolstered by a bill of rights and a legal system that has stood us over two centuries and into our third. So this commission on radical Islam, I hope, will come to fruition. I hope it'll be a commission on radical Islamism and will bring in the best and the brightest minds and will be led, not wasting its time looking for a mission, but quickly come together with a clear mission 
to figure out how to have this common lens of approaching the threats in Minneapolis, Chattanooga, San Bernardino, Boston, Dallas, Orlando, back to 9-11, New York, at the Pentagon in Pennsylvania, and even before that to 1979 in our hostage crisis. Yes, all the way back then, if not before. This threat has existed. The need to establish a commission on radical Islamism, no different than be it the Manhattan Project of the 20th century, or commissions and thought groups and thought leaders that address the Cold War as the Committee on committee for the Present Danger, which I actually was a part of, was invited to join by Senator Lieberman and Senator Kyle, who chaired it in the 20th century. This Committee on a Present Danger fell apart in the 21st century, whether it was because of a lack of Clarity from the Bush administration? Yeah, the Bush administration and Bush 43 had some clarity about the freedom agenda, but there was no, there was no Arab awakening. There was no sense that the freedom agenda would ever take off, that Iraq was anything more than a response to Saddam's inability to turn over or submit to real inspections or turn over his weapons of mass destruction. We can argue whether they existed or not. But now, the Arab awakening has created an anarchy, has created a chaos, and has created opportunity for the end of regimes that are the source of the problem, in addition to the, the spreaders of theocratic Islam that they use as a tool to legitimize their dictatorship. So the lens of this commission that I hope President Trump, beginning on January 20, addresses is a lens that will look through everything and make recommendations about domestic policy when it comes to public monitoring of ideas, precursors that we acknowledge are radicalization precursors, and begin to say, you know, even terms like radicalization need to be abandoned because... A radical is sometimes defined as somebody who's violent. But yet many of these radicals, come violent radicals, don't always start as radicals and start as theocrats who believe that the lens that they look through the world is one through an Islamic state, an Islamic identity, an Islamic belief that the that this government should be Sharia-based and the rule of law is about Sharia law and the theocrats' interpretation of that and not secular free law. Yes, that should be the focus. And I think we can get to, as I've told you and we've discussed here, whether it's beginning with the Muslim reform movement, leaders, the secular Muslims, uh, anti-Islamists, and in the non-Muslim community, talk to uh, many of the minorities that are victims, be it uh, from the Coptic community in Egypt, the Yazidis of Iraq, the Christians and many of the Arabic communities that can speak and testify to their witness of oppression, the Ahmadis, the Ismailis, and many of the aggrieved minority sects within Islam that I think need to be part of this commission that would evolve. And this commission can then be a starting point to cohese a policy that is pro-liberty, not anti-Muslim, not anti-Islam as a religion, but anti-Islamism as a political state identity movement that threatens this country. When we come back, I want to talk to you about, well, what would that look like? How would it cross over between the Pentagon, DOD, Homeland Security, even other departments, including NSA and Department of State? This is Zudi Jasseron, Reform This. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. 
Coming up today on Patents 2. And free healthcare. I mean, the healthcare is far superior to ours. Of course, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. you know, when I had to, I, I, I had uh, uh, a health issue recently, uh, shingles, and I had to wait 18 months to get it. <laughs> Pat, that's not true. We've got to treat it immediately. Okay, it was about eight minutes. It was about eight minutes. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jesser. This is Zudi Jesser. Welcome back this week to Reform This, to our last segment, as we unravel what I think I hope is what this, the transition team for the Trump coming Trump administration is beginning to put together. And set aside all the politics and all the uh, hand-wringing about uh, Armageddon and all this nonsense. Uh, listen, this is going to be our president. He's my president. He's your president if you're an American listening to this. And we have a duty as Americans to help him succeed, to help his administration keep us safe preserve and protect the Constitution, preserve and protect our families, be they Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheist, Hindu, Buddhist, Baptist, whatever you may be, this president is our president. And I'm here, and I hope you're with me to work with him. Many of us were not Trump supporters, but yet I, as a conservative, am seeing him make selections for his cabinet that are just fantastic. And, uh, you know, I want us to focus on the things that we can help him and his administration do well. And I think the greatest one that we can is begin to move simply beyond, what do you call it? And, you know, listen, this week, as, as President Obama gave his last national security speech, thank God it's his last one, he again spent the whole time patronizing us, telling us that, using such false, abject lies as to say that no foreign terrorist organization in eight years committed an act of terror on the soil of America. Excuse me? No act of terror? So this guy, you know, obviously splitting hairs about what an FTO or foreign terrorist organization is. Oh yeah, I guess no formal Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda committed an act, but what's ISIS? And all the allegiances given to ISIS, his FBI initially did not want to release the allegiance that Omar Mateen gave to ISIS as he called in 911, but no, that wasn't a foreign terrorist organization. The lies are just, I mean, listen, I hope as I think about the Obama presidential library and what's going to be put in there, Sounds like it's going to be a repository for fake news. <laughs> it's, it's going to be a repository for revisionist history. And remember, that's what Obama tried to do when he got to the White House. He redid the website and the chronicled information that was on there in order to cleanse it of the type of information that might reveal the truth of what he changed upon getting in. And I hope one of the first things President Trump does on January 20th is to hire maybe an, an outside party to keep track for the American people what the president does, regardless of party, that the archives, that the history of what the reality is of what happens on the inside, be it the audio tapes internally in the Oval Office, whatever it may be, that are things that the executive branch cannot play with, cannot present in a way other than the truth so that we can eventually, if we don't know it in real time, know it later. Because each party, when they get in there, will try to make their indelible mark in history a positive one rather than a negative one. President Obama has been, unfortunately, for the most part, negative. And I think as we look at what President Trump can do and will do, I hope when it comes to the issue that I've been dedicating my life to, which is Islamic reform, he will begin to wake up to not only the fact that you have to identify the enemy, which he has clearly done, but to how to get there. What are the solutions? 
Our solutions, I hope, include a network of understanding with clarity that the evil empire of today, Mr. Trump, I hope you're listening. The evil empire, say it with me. The evil empire of today is the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Yes, I know it has a lot of our allies and friends that you want to, to help us kill ISIS. Yes, they'll do that, whether you call them the evil empire or not. It's a much of a threat to them more so than it is to us. But don't appease them. I thought it was wonderful. I hope it was planned and not just simply an accident that when you spoke to Taiwan and took their call to accept their congratulatory call, you, you let the world know that we will not be bullied by dictatorships and thugs, regimes like the Chinese. We will not be bullied by the Castros or the Assads of the world. And I hope not the Putins of the world. And I think a Trump presidency will be pragmatic, will look at short-term things that work, but long-term things that he looks towards his legacy as being one that recognizes that radical Islam was but a symptom of theocratic Islam, that Islam is going through that same time in history that Christianity was that led to the blessed evolution of the American system, the American rejection of British theocracy, European theocracy, much as the French Revolution and others did. So I hope that's where we're headed. I hope and pray that he begin as his advisors, from Ryan's Priebus to Kellyanne Conway, to Steve Bannon, General Michael Flynn, KT McFarland, and a lot of them as they begin to look at how to not only fill the slots within, but to create a central nucleus of advisors, of trusted confidants that recognize that we need to shift and we need to first end the CVE nonsense, countering violent extremism, whatever the heck that was, and begin with a CVI nuclear idea with a bigger lens of defeating political Islam globally and advancing a liberal secular movements from country to country that embraces the green revolution of Iran, that embraces the secularists of Tunisia as they won the last election, embraces a third option in Egypt and not tell, not tell the Arabs of Egypt that they're doomed to military dictatorship forever, but let them determine their own future through an Arab awakening in which we do take sides, but take the sides of those who share our values. That when we talk about immigration, yes, we pause all immigration, especially from countries that are cauldrons for jihadists, but we pause and not just say end it forever. We pause it with a window that we will vet against those who are Islamists and bring in those who are believers in liberty, in secular freedoms and reject the Sharia state. That can be done. I don't think it's impossible. And with the best and brightest minds, remember the Arab Awakening and a lot of these changes were stimulated by things like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, the internet, social media, Snapchat, WhatsApp, a major Arab communication mechanism to, to bypass governmental control which has been working, but yet has been disorganized because America's been absent. It's my dream. I want to leave you this week with what my dream is. And I hope you can share this with me. I dream of a time in the next few years when you will see the resurgence of the U.S. Information Agency. And that that will be the U.S. Anti-Islamism Agency. That we will resurrect the mechanism in which we fought the Cold War by Radio Free Europe and installing uh, a loudspeaker across Europe, Eastern Europe, beyond the walls, that we say that now we're going to install loudspeakers through social media 
and 24-7 internet communication, be it through these podcasts, be it through videos, be it through memes and hashtags, whatever it may take over Twitter, to begin to get the best and brightest minds of reformists that I can rattle off for you that are believers in the ideas of our Muslim reform movement across countries from Qatar to Kuwait to Iran to Saudi Arabia and Egypt, that across each of these countries, we begin to harness those who are would-be prisoners of conscience where they live because the dictatorships fear them. And we begin to spread their ideas virally in a program just like the Russians, the Chinese, the Islamists, Jim Woolsey has talked hundreds of times about how the Saudis have taken a small and significant tribe and with petro-Islamists have spent $100 billion, with a B, $100 billion on spreading the ideas of Wahhabism around the planet. And that's how you get what many perceive to be Islam, which is their theocratic Islam as being the Islam because there's been no counter-narrative. And I'm not saying the American government under a Trump administration should get into what Islam or which Islam is right, but at least resurrect a U.S. information agency, also then called Public Diplomacy. Our Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy with Karen Hughes under Bush 43 tried to do a fraction of that, but was just underpowered and completely ill-equipped for the job. And especially pre-Arab Awakening did not see the potential for what was going to happen. And sadly, the Islamist peace narrative and other apologetics tripped over themselves to prevent the Islam needs reform. The Islam of liberty is our friend and the Islam of Islamism or theocracy is our enemy narrative that needed to go forth. So my dream is that our public diplomacy program be resurrected that the Undersecretary of Public Diplomacy at the State Department, that we used to remember not only have them at the State Department, but we had public diplomacy programs at the Department of Defense. And there also needs to be one domestically at Homeland Security that unite programs at Homeland Security, public information, be it through NPR, through PBS, and then through State Department work, that all of these information agencies begin to develop offices for the countering of Islamism and the advancement of liberty. And that would be a useful, useful tool in helping identify precursors for radicalization and ways to obstruct that radicalization through ideas as you get the best and brightest minds of Muslim entrepreneurs that are patriots and believe in the Western system of governance above all else. And that many of our families who reject Khomeinism, who reject the Islamism of the Brotherhood, are here because we love this system and will begin to create mechanisms of defeating the theocrats. But we need the resources, we need the support of governments like a Trump administration. And I hope he's listening to this. I hope their transition team takes this to heart and begins a strategy where you have the 21st Century Manhattan Project begin to develop something new. Not to fit us into old slots. This was a president that won on draining the swamp, on defeating the establishment. Well, it's time to take that to defeating the establishment abroad. It's time to take that to defeating the Islamist establishment, calling them the evil empire and doing that subversively, through regime change based on pumping ideas, just like we tried into Cuba, into the Soviet Union that then fell apart. And hopefully, within eight years, if not more, we'll be talking about bringing down that wall of separation between the Islamic consciousness, the Muslim consciousness, and freedom and liberty. That's what we try to do on this program, and we cannot do it as long as Western governments are asleep, we are under-resourced, underpowered, and smothered by the Islamist empires that come together in this neo-caliphate called the OIC. ISIS is but a small little tip of the iceberg. 
I hope this commission on radical Islam is one beyond simply terror threat domestically, but begins to put all these pieces together for a strategy to protect our homeland domestically and abroad from enemies domestic and foreign and advance liberty through the defeat of Islamism. We can do it. Start to tell Mr. Trump and his colleagues that are in the transition team that this is the only way to do it and it needs to be led by Muslim patriots who can put the pieces together and bring the resources to clear a clear mission. This is Zudi Jasser. Thank you for being with me. We'll see you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.